The scene before us is one of uncertainty and unrest. In city after city, we see the gathering of unpredictable crowds of people stirred up by words or events, lashing out, sometimes violently. In the midst of the commotion, we see some trying to speak the truth, while others try to keep people from hearing the truth. We see lots of different people, some earnest, some confused, some vengeful. Above all, we see crowds of very needy people who find themselves caught up in a physical and spiritual chaos that human systems and ideologies simply cannot make right. Am I talking about Acts 14 or our own present reality? And the truth is there's nothing new under the sun. What we see happening around us in the world today, it's all happened before. It doesn't make it necessarily any better, but it has happened before. That's the way of the fallen world. Many of us are wondering in these days that we live in, what should I do? What can I do for my city or for this ruined world or for the people around us who are so desperately in need? If you spend any time on social media or any time watching the news, that covers just about all of us, I'd say, you know that a lot of people have been telling you what to do, what to think, what to say, how to respond, how to feel how you are supposed to react to the present dilemmas we find ourselves in. The problem is so much of the guidance that we're hearing simply leads down the paths of men. And these are paths that have been tried over and over again by many well-meaning people, yet unable to overcome the obstacle in front of us. It's as if they're leading you halfway up a mountain. And sure, it takes a lot of planning and a great deal of effort it's hard and demanding, but it's no good to get halfway up a mountain. You're left stranded. In the end, you have to get to the other side. The pioneers who came out west, they had to get over the mountains. They couldn't stop on the mountains. There was not going to be any hope for them there. Now, luckily, we serve a God who moves mountains so that he can continue his work of redeeming and saving in all places all around the world. That's his job. That's his business. That's what he wants to do. It is he alone who can bring beauty from the ashes of our world. We need to believe that Jesus Christ is the world's only hope. Jesus Christ is the world's only hope. Not just for eternal salvation. Not just so that I can get to heaven one day and bypass hell. Bypass the guilt of my sin but that Jesus Christ is the only hope for the transformation of human hearts. Jesus Christ is the only actual hope for the betterment of society. If we think that some method of man, some worldly wisdom, will be able to overcome the obstacles that we face in the world today, then we're going to make the very same mistake that we see so often playing out in the pages of Scripture. One example is when the children of Israel facing final destruction from Babylon, instead of turning to God in repentance and humility, turn to Egypt. Egypt will help us. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, and in the end, they were all destroyed. Instead of trusting the Lord, they went man's way. They looked at man's strength. They looked at man's methods, and it ended in ruin for them. But let's assume for the moment that we're all on board now, all of us here trust that God is the one who can bring help and healing to our nation, to our messes, to our families, to all of these problems that are so loudly blaring over the uh, broadcasts of our lives. Let's assume we all agree on that. 
the question still lingers, okay, well then what do I do? What can I do? What is my part? What is my place in the work? What is the way forward? The Holy Spirit wants to lead us and instruct us using the example of two pioneers who have gone this way before. In Acts 14, Barnabas and Paul find themselves in scenes that really aren't all that different from the ones playing out in the streets of America today. And begin in verse 1 here, and we read this. In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue, as usual, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Our heroes have made their way to the Galatian region of Asia Minor on their trip. Paul would later write a letter to the churches there, and we still read that letter today. History remembers the Galatians as a vain and fickle people. That's what some different historians and writers wrote at the time. We'll see some of that legendary fickleness in this very text. Americans are fickle people. Uh, you can say one thing, and that'll get, you, that'll get you canceled in today's culture, right? The apostles were in Iconium. Why? Well, it was because they had been run out of Antioch. They ran them out on a rail. They got their city council together and the leading uh, you know, officials in the city said, get rid of these guys. We're tired of them being popular among people. We would like them expelled from our city and from our region. Now in this new city, they operated the same way as before. They had a usual method, we're told, of ministry and life. Their hearts and their behaviors were moored to certain principles. And so nobody had less certainty in circumstances than the Apostle Paul, right? When you're talking about his circumstances, he didn't know if he was going to live or die today. He didn't know if he was going to be beaten today or given a hot meal. He didn't know if he was going to be robbed and stripped naked or if he was going to be at the center of a great revival. And yet, no matter where he went, we see he was a very usual man in the sense that he, his attitude, his behavior, his methodology was moored to certain principles. And so listen, by way of application, it is important, especially in times of unrest and uncertainty, that Christians develop consistency in life. God's Word says it is not good for us to be blown about by winds of doctrine or all sorts of different teachings. It isn't good for us to be unstable people jumping from one trend to another. We are to be steadfast, the Bible says. It's not only so that we can have regular growth in our own spiritual lives, but also so that when some rogue wave of life comes, crashing on the side of our lives or on the side of our families or on the side of our church or on the side of our society, we're not knocked out by it, but that we're able to weather these sorts of storms. So that even if the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the sea, what does the psalm say? We need not fear. That's the reality of the Christian life. That's the reality of God working in the lives of his people. That kind of steadfastness. As Christians, we do a lot of different kinds of work among a lot of different kinds of people. I'm not saying we all just do the exact same thing. But generally speaking, as people, there are certain consistencies in the life of faith. Practical things like gathering together, worshiping God, learning and applying His Word, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, prayer, being secure in our understanding of the truth. Those are some practical things where we can develop consistency in our life which will lead to not only growth and the bearing of spiritual fruit, but greater stability. 
man, our societies need stability right now. They, they need to look around and find someone who's not knocked over by these cataclysms that we're facing, whether it's one thing or the other. And there are other things, heart things, attitude and perspective things that need to be consistent in our lives. We're going to get to those in a little bit. But following the winds and trends of this world will not only keep us unbalanced as we try to make progress in life, it also can become quite deadly. So Paul and Barnabas, as usual, went to the synagogue. But this Jewish first method did not ever exclude anyone. They never went to the synagogues first at the expense of people who wanted to hear the gospel. They had love and compassion for all people. And we find in these stories that their regular method was met with lots of different responses. Some believed, some didn't. Some laughed, some asked questions. Some became violent, some believed. In Iconium, here at the beginning, many believed. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. The source of today's problems is unbelief. That is the source of the problems in the world. Listen, we can't even say that sin is the problem in, anymore in the world. You know why? Because Jesus Christ solved the problem of sin. Jesus Christ solved that problem once and for all when he poured out his blood on the cross and said, it's done, it's finished. He conquered sin and death and the grave. The sin problem has an answer, has a cure. It's like one of these illnesses you hear about that a few hundred years ago wiped everybody out who got it. When's the last time you know, we worried about polio? When's the last time we worried about scarlet fever or those sorts of things? We don't care about them anymore. We have new worries and new concerns and new dangers, of course. But the plague of sin has a cure, a very simple cure, a cure that works every time if a person's willing to take the medicine. The sin problem has been solved. It is unbelief which holds back the furtherance of the work of the gospel. The gospel which saves lives and changes communities. The gospel which, when embraced, cures wickedness, makes all things new. We remember how in Matthew 13 we are told it was because of unbelief that Jesus could not do many miracles in Nazareth. It wasn't because the sin was great. It was because people looking at Jesus and all that he had done said, I choose not to believe. I refuse to acknowledge that that man is the Savior. And so his work was held back in that place. Unbelief not only holds back the work of God, it poisons the entire world. We see it actively happening in this verse, but Paul explains it in detail in Romans 1, where Paul says, you want to know what's wrong with the world? Let's take a look at the world. The problem isn't that sin is so great that God cannot overcome it by his work. The problem isn't that the pile of sin is so bad and so entangled and so disgusting that the Holy Spirit just can't work his way through it. That's not the problem at all. It's unbelief. He says that because people refuse to acknowledge God, the result is all the mess we see in the world today. Fights and murder and greed and corruption and senselessness and this huge long list of all of these vile things that shock us when we see them. But it's because of unbelief. We look around at the world today and are heartbroken by what we see. We should be. Communities being destroyed, innocent people dying, countless numbers of people living in fear for one reason or another. But what we see playing out on our screens are the symptoms of the underlying problem that the world is full of unbelievers. That's what Luke says here. The unbelieving did this. 
I always chuckle when I see those t-shirts that say, y'all need Jesus. I love those shirts. But the fact of the matter is that it boils down to that. We need Jesus. Hanford needs Jesus. The world needs Jesus. We're more hesitant to, to say that these days. We're more hesitant to give what we call the Sunday school answer. Is that joke about the kid who doesn't pay attention in Sunday school and so all, he always just answers Jesus and he's always right. But the truth is, when it comes to some of these societal problems around us, we may think, well, we can't just say Jesus is the answer. That's not feeling or that's obtuse or that's, you know, old school thinking. But it really is true. And I can prove it. I really think I can prove it, that you all need Jesus is the answer for all of these problems we see unfolding. And here's the proof. In Jericho, there was once a man named Zacchaeus. He was a corrupt member of the 1% of the day. He oppressed his neighbors actively. He used a broken system to enrich himself by breaking the backs of his friends and neighbors, right? And then he met Jesus. And then he believed. And immediately his corruption was gone. And not only did he stop oppressing people, he then became one of the most socially generous people in his whole city. What did he do? He turned around and gave four times back and became a man of incredible generosity. It took one afternoon. One afternoon. It took one meal with Jesus Christ. And when he chose to believe... His corruption was gone. And the oppression which he forced on other people was gone. And in its place was what? Love and submission to Jesus Christ. Not just love and submission, but then he became an active agent of the grace of God in the city of Jericho. Zacchaeus didn't need sensitivity training. He didn't need to have a hashtag directed at him so his life would be ruined. He needed an encounter with the living God who not only wanted to save him, but then use him to do good in his community. Because when God takes hold of a life, he not only cleans it, he fills it with love and sends it out. He says, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to wash you with the water of the world. Also, I'm going to have torrents of living water come out of you for the benefit of others. Love does what information or anger or politics or all these methods of men never can do. That's what God wants to do. You know, the book of Hebrews says that because the Israelites did not believe, they were not able to enter into the rest God wanted for them. Belief in the truth of God's word leads not only to personal rest in my relationship with him, it leads to societal rest. If you read the stories of these different revivals, whether it's the Jesus movement or the Welsh revival or these other revivals in history, what do you see? You see the negative aspects of society closing down and the positive aspects breaking out all over the place. You hear stories of, you know, police forces having to like effectively lay off a bunch of people because there's no crime anymore in Wales because people aren't hurting each other anymore, because people aren't oppressing each other anymore. They aren't stealing. They aren't doing all these terrible things because Jesus Christ has transformed their lives and is transforming their society as a result. Verse 3 says, So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of His grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. You know, when this poisoning campaign began in verse 2. The disciples, the apostles had a decision to make. Would they stay or would they go? 
They had been in Antioch just before. They could probably see the writing on the wall. They knew what was coming next in the program to get rid of them. What we find in the book of Acts is that there really isn't a one-size-fits-all situation to these sorts of tensions, right? Sometimes Paul would stay in a location for a couple of years. Sometimes he would stay for several months. Sometimes he would stay for three Sabbaths, and then, you know, the Lord would lead them on. And so even for Paul, as we see tension was mounting, there wasn't just a, why well, I always do this. What was he going to do? How should they react? Here's their reaction. They spoke for the Lord, and they did so boldly. Paul and Barnabas were gentle men. They were full of compassion, but they were not timid. They weren't compromising. They spoke boldly. And what they spoke was all about grace. All about grace. God's message to a hostile world is grace. And God was pleased when his servant spoke this way. Verse 4 says, But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews, others with the apostles. How can you side against grace? It's hard to believe, but it happens. Then again, some people like Microsoft, so, you know, what are you going to do? All I'm saying, spend some time on a, on a MacBook and you're going to feel like you, you were brought from darkness to light. That's all I'm saying. A war was once fought between France and Mexico because a French cafe had been ransacked during looting in Mexico City and the Mexican government wouldn't pay for the damages. It's known as the Pastry War. You can look it up on history.com later. But here we see tension had morphed into division. Note that the apostles didn't fuel the division. They were peacemakers. But listen, they didn't compromise. They didn't say, okay, 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 we'll stop offending you. If you don't want to hear it, you don't have to hear it. They held to their position. They, they, they held to their faith and their, and their proclamation of Jesus Christ. But their attitude, like Christ, was, you may be against us, but we are for you. That's Christ's attitude towards every single person in the world. Every single atheist, every single murderer, every single person, Christ says, listen, you may be at war with me, but I am for you. And that was the same attitude that the apostles had. Paul didn't want to fight. Grace never does. But truth can't be negotiated even in an effort to make peace. All we can do is double down on the message and the methods of grace. If people want to refuse that and go to war, fine. But we are still for them. Even if they are, have made themselves our enemies, we are still for them because Christ is for them. He died for them. The gospel is going to divide. Jesus said as much. He says, listen, the gospel is going to divide. Because some people will refuse to believe. But let's not let division be because of our failure to show grace to people. It's grace that we're sent out to preach and to demonstrate. Verse 5, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian towns of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside. Satan was coordinating different divisions of his captive army to come against God's work. Unbelief makes strange bedfellows. Jews and Gentiles didn't like doing things together, but hey, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so Satan was coordinating them together. He had tried to discredit the apostles in Cyprus, drive them out of Antioch, and now to destroy them in Iconium. But Paul heard about it, we're told. This happened a lot to Paul, I was realizing. 
At least four times that we know of in the book of Acts, he hears about something bad that's going to happen to him. Once when he had to escape the city in a basket, we've seen that already. Once here, once when a plot is going to be laid against him while he's in Roman custody. And once when he's headed to Jerusalem there for the last time in the book and everyone keeps telling him and prophesying, hey, you're going to get arrested when you get there. But here he had another decision to make. Even in these situations, Paul didn't always make the same decision. And we come to the conclusion it's because the Holy Spirit didn't always lead him in the exact same way. This was an increasingly hostile situation. Things were starting to escalate. What would he do? Should he stay? Should he run? Should he try to defend himself? Should he appeal to the laws of the land? Sometimes he did, right? He would appeal to the laws of the land. Sometimes when he finds out that people are about to murder him and he's in Roman custody, he tells the Roman soldiers and they send this huge detachment to protect him, hundreds of soldiers. Sometimes he just ran. Hey, they're going to kill you. I better get in a basket and and hightail it out of here. Sometimes he just pressed forward. They said, hey, you're going to get arrested. You're going to get persecuted in Jerusalem. And he says, don't break my heart. I'm going. I'm not going to stop. We may not be facing violent persecution, praise the Lord, but we are in the midst of some very strenuous times, whether it's COVID or the ongoing riots near and far or whatever. What should I do? There are a lot of options, and a lot of the options are good. A lot of the options are are even godly. But it's not the good one we're after, it's the right one that we're after. What should you and I do in these situations? I don't know what you should do. What should I do? I want the right thing to do. And to figure that out, we have to be led by the Holy Spirit, not not by Instagram, not by Facebook, not by political pundits. We need to be led by God, the Holy Spirit. So be led. Go before your Lord and believe that He will explain to you what you should be doing as much as some stupid Instagram feed will tell you what to do. Verse 7, there they continued preaching the gospel. They say insanity is doing the same thing over and over, but expecting a different result, but Paul and Barnabas aren't insane. They know that wherever they go, they're going to face similar opposition, but they also know that the gospel was still the power of God unto salvation. I could see, in a modern sense, people having a meeting and say, hey, um, everywhere we go, people end up trying to murder us. Maybe we should repackage and rebrand and kind of, you know, take some of this more, you know, stuff that people don't really like out. And, and, you know, in that way, that's not what Paul and Barnabas did. They said, all right, welcome to Lystra. Let's do this again. Saddle up. They weren't stupid, they weren't insane, but they knew that there was one hope for the world, and the hope was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If you want to solve, since it's the topic today, I'll try to be frank, without, hopefully without sounding insensitive. But listen, if we want to solve racial turmoil in America, the answer is the gospel. That's the answer. You can try to penalize or educate or incentivize or whatever other schemes you can try to come up with, but those are all band-aids on a cancer cell. It's not going to do anything. Because those things cannot penetrate into the heart and soul of a person who is held captive by the devil, right? 
It's possible that some of these programs and different things do some good. I'm not saying we cancel everything and not do anything. That's not, of course, what I'm saying. But if you want to solve racism, you need to transform racists. That's the answer. And only the gospel can do that. But it does do that. See, that's the thing that the church needs to always remind ourselves of, that the gospel does do this. It actually works. Not just to get somebody entrance into heaven, but it gets them to be a different person, to transform them, a new creation. What stands in the way of progress are those people who will not surrender and humble themselves and believe that Jesus Christ is king and that all that he has said is true and that his word is true. That's the problem. Verse 8 says, In Lystra a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet. He never walked and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. Pause there. We've seen a scene like this one before when Peter and John were used to heal a Jewish man at the temple. Suffering is the same in Jerusalem or Lystra. It's the same in the first century or the 21st century. There's need everywhere. The good news is that there's grace no matter where and no matter when. And what is such good news that as we follow Paul through this missionary journey, the message is the same for governors or cripples, right? He had spoken to the governor of the island of Cyprus who had his life transformed by Jesus Christ. Imagine the kind of influence he was able to have from his seat as the governor. But that same message is for the cripple as well. Maybe that cripple doesn't have as much influence or as much power over his community, but look at the life change. Look at what he was able to do in the life of this crippled person who is made whole for the first time. Verse 9 continues, after looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. What do we put our faith in? It says this man had faith to be healed because he was listening to the message. Of course, we know he had faith in Jesus Christ. So the question is, what do we have faith in? If we want transformative power to be working in our community and be working through our lives and working through our church, then what do we have faith in? Is it in a man? Is it in a system? Is it in a human ideology of some sort? This man believed in Jesus and his life was forever changed. And there was an automatic response when he believed. He immediately had the ability to start walking around. And that's a great just devotional picture for us. Now, when a person is saved, they are called immediately to start walking around, walking with God. A lot to learn, a lot to grow in, a lot to start to understand, of course. But all of our learning is on the job when we walk with the Lord. From the start, God invigorates and he strengthens and he transforms as we trust him and as we exercise our faith. Verse 11 says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Satan had tried to discredit them, tried to drive them away, tried to destroy them. Now he tries something new. Let's deify them. Let's see how this works. He's got a lot of, uh, a lot of tools in the chest. <laughs> the apostles weren't going to take the bait, of course. But you know, it's sad to see the fog that the lost people of, world, of the world live in. They live in a fog. These Galatians had a legend that Zeus and Hermes had come down once long before, and they had disguised themselves, and they didn't like the way they were treated, and so they killed everyone except for two people in the region. And so now, they, these Galatians saw this happening, 
and they respond out of fear. I got to do something. And so they respond out of fear because I hope that God won't kill us all again. But what a sad lie the enemy had tricked them with. What was true? Well, we know that this was true. God had come down in human flesh. But he came to seek and to save. He didn't come down to kill people, to wipe people out because they didn't treat him well enough. Nobody was treated more poorly than Jesus. And yet, he turned to Judas, his betrayer, and he called him friend. He came to seek and to save. He came that we might have life and might have it more abundantly. He came so that he could bring justice and peace to the world. As we seek these things in our town and in our communities, let's not settle for less than the revelation of Scripture. We shouldn't settle for stop gaps or the lesser of two evils or things like that. Rather, we should embrace the full truth revealed in Jesus Christ through the Scriptures of who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do, what he's capable of. Don't settle. Verse 13 says, The priest of Zeus, whose temple is just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. We live in a world where things can change very quickly. That's been made very plain in the last few months. What a big laugh we would have had. In fact, we had a laugh about it before all the COVID stuff went crazy. I think I made a joke up here about it. And I remember myself included, we all had a big laugh. And a couple weeks later, you kind of were breaking the law by coming to church. <laughs> Right, but things can change fast. Christians need to learn to think on our feet. We remember a few passages ago, Paul had preached to a bunch of people and they said, hey, we have questions, will you come back next week? And so he did and you know, obviously there was time for him to mull over things and think through things and interact with people, but you know, we don't always have a week to mull over our response to what's happening in the world around us. So what can we do? Well, we live by those controlling principles that we talked about before, those things that we need to moor our lives and our attitudes and our worldview to. The practical things, you know, the, the practical exercises of the Christian life, sure. But those interior things that we see demonstrated here, we need to be controlled by the principles of grace and humility and peace and truth. We are called to these things as God's people and should always keep them in operation. Talk about insurance lapsing, right? It's a bad thing. It's much worse to have grace lapse in our lives. We need to be operating in grace all the time in our minds, in our actions, our behavior, in our words. What should Paul and Barnabas do in this situation? Operate in grace. Grace doesn't condone sin and we're gonna see that very obviously. It deals with sin but it does so in a certain way. Look at verse 14. The apostles and Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd shouting, people, why are you doing these things? We are people also just like you and we are proclaiming good news to you that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. The apostles were really distressed at what was happening. They weren't overreacting. I mean, if, I mean they're, they're taking this really seriously. They tore their robes, and these are guys who don't have a lot of extra robes around. Even though they sensed great danger, they didn't respond aggressively or in anger. Still grace. But in that grace, they point out the ways that, that the ways of the world are worthless. Said so the things that you are doing here are wrong and are worthless. 
let me tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ, the living God who wants to save you from your sin. Right? So no condoning of the bad things that they're doing. No condoning of their weird, wicked worldview. No condoning of the worthlessness of their mindsets. But operating in grace to bring the truth to people who really, really needed it. You and I are being told over and over right now what we need to think, what we need to do, how we need to do it, how we should react to every different situation. And the Bible explains very clearly and categorically that the ways of the world are worthless. And finding himself in the midst of this mob, Paul wanted to make it clear. He says, hey, we are Christian. We are Christian. We belong to Jesus Christ, and that means something. He didn't say, you know, well, he didn't come to them as a Jew. He didn't come to them as a Roman. He came to them as a Christian. There was an absolute difference and the apostles then invited anyone who was willing to join in with them. He said, hey, you want in? You want to join in in this thing that we're talking about? Verse 16, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness. Since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy, the grace of God. We don't need to apologize for Jesus Christ. Perhaps if we have aligned ourselves with some other groups or under some other banner, we have something to apologize for, but not for our Lord, the helper and sustainer of all things. Paul spoke to them as a living witness of the living God. He pointed out that creation displays the grace of God, and therefore Christians should display that grace too, without condoning evil and without withholding the truth, but operating in grace. Verse 18, even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. We've been seeing what crowds are capable of on the news and on the television. And uh, it would have been hard work for them to try to restrain this crowd, but it was work worth doing. A lot was happening. Of course, there were some earnest people in the crowd that day caught up in a frenzy, but what they were doing was wrong. The Christians in the situations here could simultaneously love these people and show them grace while also calling out their wrongdoing. All of that was possible. All of that was happening. Paul was not going to participate in this strange worldly demonstration that day, but he did make it his goal to lead these very people out of their wrong and into God's way. He didn't separate. He didn't say, I'm against you. I'm out of here. He said, you, what you are doing is wrong. Now let me show you the way that you can have what I have. Verse 19 says, Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. Satan had sent anti-missionaries from town to town. He loves to counterfeit the work of God. For these enemies of the gospel, it wasn't enough that Paul had been driven out of their cities. They wanted him dead. This startling turn of events drives home the warning that we should always beware the crowd. Those who worship you one day may kill you the next day. That's human nature. Why didn't they kill Barnabas too? All we can say is that God's people each face different sufferings and different trials. Paul and Silas are going to be in jail together, right? Busted up, beaten, shackled, messed up. Barnabas seems to skate here. It's not because he was dodging anything. It's just that God allows different things in different people's lives. We should empathize and comfort one another, but not demand that everyone experience the same struggles I do before I can legitimize them in my mind. 
That's not realistic. Paul's stoning here triggers a powerful flashback for us when he himself stood in agreement as Stephen suffered the very same fate. Paul had been a cold and calculating killer. He had been a butcher and a terrorist. What did he need to become a better person? He needed to believe in Jesus Christ, and when he did, everything changed. When Paul believed, the whole world changed because of what God was going to do through him. And we find in this text there's still more for him to do. Verse 20, after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. The next day he left with Barnabas and Derby. In Disney's Aladdin, after trying to strand him in the cave of wonders and trying to drown him in, uh, in the ocean and blasting him to the end of the earth, Jafar finally says in exasperation to Aladdin, how many times do I have to kill you? And uh, I imagine Satan must have felt a similar frustration many times as he tried to hunt Paul down. But Paul stands up and goes right back into the city to the people who just murdered him. On the one hand, it seems he was fully healed, at least enough to walk and travel along 60 miles starting out the very next day. On the other hand, we remember that Paul would later say in his letter to the Galatians, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus Christ. Some of those marks perhaps left by the very readers of that epistle. Paul, we know, had once been used to work a miracle of judgment against the enemies of the gospel. He struck Bar-Jesus blind, remember? I suppose he could have done something similar here. But that wasn't his leading. It wasn't his heart. Instead, just more grace. Let's go back in. Maybe we can talk to those people while they're cleaning the blood off of their hands. We are being bombarded with messages about what we all need to be doing to respond to the strains and situations and unrest plaguing our communities right now. But unfortunately, the majority of it is generated from the minds of men. And man cannot fix what's wrong with man. Man can't fix what's wrong with society. Man can't fix what's really wrong in the human heart and, and uh, in these situations around us. What is actually needful is to be walking with God, right? To walk with God is what is needed. Being led by Him in grace, He then shows us how to proceed and then strengthens us to do it. What we need is Zacchaeus to become Zacchaeus after he met Jesus. What we need is for Saul to become Paul. And that is accomplished by the work of the gospel. As lives are transformed, as people are made into new creations. Our world is hurting. It's on the brink. It's desperately in need. The cure is the gospel. The gospel is what gives sight to the blind. The gospel is what moves men from cheating to charity. The gospel is what transforms a person that is consumed with hate to a person consumed with love. We aren't sent into the world to condemn the world, but to help disentangle people who are trapped in darkness and in their sin. We do so by operating in God's unfailing grace, his indiscriminate love, his uncompromising truth, keeping to God's path, speaking boldly for the Lord, continuing as usual as Christians as the Lord moves the mountains out of the way.